Amen. Well, welcome in. Welcome to Lindsay Lane North in our 1045 service. Uh, we are thankful to have each and every one of you. Love, man, celebrating through baptism, what God is doing uh, in, in that area and what God is doing in the hearts and lives of folks as they follow him in obedience. Uh, and uh, what he's done in, in worship. Man, this weekend has been an amazing weekend. Uh, our women had our IF gathering, our IF conference, and uh, man, we had a ton of ladies, 40-plus uh, ladies uh, here at one point or another in the, uh, in the weekend, and uh, man, just praising God, worshiping Him, getting into His Word, man, doing some sound uh, exegetical study in uh, Psalms 23, and if you missed it, man, you missed out. Uh, because that is a that was a great time. Uh, I got all the feedback from my wife. I, 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 I joked with the ladies. I came in to help break down, and I started getting in my feels a little bit. Like started feeling like I needed to express myself a little more just in breaking down the screen and stuff. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, that was a joke. Thank you. All right, uh, man. Sometimes I'm mean, gonna tell you what. Sometimes, man. Sometimes y'all need to. I, I gotta get y'all. Get y'all loosened up a little bit, all right? Um, but but yeah, um, well they had a great weekend, and man, it was uh, it was it was really really neat to see God moving in the ladies and the altar full of folks just laying uh, laying things down uh, before the Lord. And uh, I would just encourage you, men, man, we've got the same. Uh, stuff available for the men uh, in our group tonight, actually. We are meeting at Jim Wills' house, uh, and he cooks for us, and he does a great job cooking for us. Sometimes Pizza Hut cooks for us, but most of the time, and man, it is, it is great. And so we're going to be meeting together tonight. Man, we're going to be spending time in prayer uh, as God is leading us in this area of discipleship. We're through with our study, and so uh, we're just going to spend time in prayer uh, seeking him. We've got fellowships planned, crawfish and shrimp bowls planned, and so you'll be finding out more information about that, but we'd love for y'all to sign up uh, for that as well. But, you know, what I, I find so encouraging, man, if, if your wife was at this conference this weekend and whoever left on Friday was a different lady when they came back on Saturday evening. Um, let it be a challenge to you. Let it be a challenge to us to continue to lead. It's a challenge for me to continue to lead our church. Uh, I believe that God has called me to grow so that our church can grow. But I want you to know the greatest challenge and the greatest uh, importance of my life is not in this church house. It's, it's in the house in the village. It's, it's in the house that, that, that we live in, that I am to set that tone for our family. And God has called every one of us to that. I mean, to be a man after God's own heart, as he ascribes to David, right, is a man of growth. How hungry are we from things of God? I, I truly believe that a lot of things in our churches, not just here, but a lot of places, are led by the women because the women are the ones that are taking that initiative and growing and seeking relationship. And so I just want to encourage you guys to do that uh, as well. Acts 13 is kind of our proof text for this entire study. Uh, Acts 13, Luke, looking back at the uh, life of David, tells us that he was raised, that God raised up David to be their king. 
of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. When I told the first service is, God's will is not complicated. It is not difficult to discern God's will. God's will for our life is to be about his will, to do what God has called us to do. It's obedience. That is God's will for us. To be a man or a woman after God's heart means that we are obedient to what he calls us to. Simply put, what is more difficult is actually living out that life of obedience. Not difficult to discern, but we'll spend our whole lives going, well, I don't know what God wants me to do here. I don't know what God wants me to do here. If you're having trouble discerning God's will, let me just tell you, friend, you are overcomplicating the issue. Just be obedient. Just be obedient. That is not an oversimplification, and God will lead you where he wants you to be. We're educated above our level of obedience. We know what God has called us to do, right? But many of us are struggling in our daily time with him. Many of us are struggling to be with him, to meet with him. Many of us are struggling to seek him. As Will said, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have other things that are more pressing on our hearts. So I brought today, this is the first trophy that my son earned. Now, here's what I mean by that. This is my 11-year-old son, Cooper. It says, the Athens Parks and Rec, seven and eight National League season champs, spring 2019, all right? So if your kid played in that league and you weren't on my kid's team, guess what, my kid beat your kid, all right? So this is the first trophy that my son's earned. Now, let me tell you, I am not one who ascribes to the idea of everybody should get a trophy. Um, I believe competition is healthy. I believe it's important. I believe we can idolize it at times, but I believe competition is good. I think people should be recognized for a job well done and for commitment, but I'm not for everybody gets a trophy. And so my son has received plenty of trophies since this time, and my son has received, received plenty of trophies before this time, but this trophy marks him as the champions of that league that he played in. Now, I remember this. I remember what was happening in this season. I remember Maddie was about to be born uh, Becca was 33 weeks pregnant and we were doing everything in our power to postpone uh, Maddie's arrival as long as possible. And so we were in antepartum at Women's and Children trying to keep Maddie from being born. And I remember our friend Katie White actually would send us videos of this championship game. Uh, she would send us videos of, hey, Cooper did this, and then we'd watch the video. Hey, Cooper did that, and we watched the videos. And my son, before this game, there was a, this was a turning point in my son's life. Before this game, my son was very, very tentative. He was very pensive when it came to sports and came to baseball. He was unsure of, of really what he wanted to do. He really had a hard time trying to gauge if he really enjoyed it or not. But he just, I'll never forget. The son that I had left the day before in the care of his grandparents 
played this game, walked into that hospital room, plopped this trophy on the table in the hospital room, and my son, all of a sudden, was a different kid. He was no longer this kid that struggled to make every play and would cry when he would mess up and all of these things that would happen. My son was the greatest seven and eight-year-old baseball player Athens had ever seen in his mind. It was totally different. He had documented proof that he had arrived on the baseball scene. Watch out world, my son is a seven and eight National League season champ in spring of 2019. That's spring ball, not fall ball. So that's the serious stuff, right? He had arrived and he acted the part. He was telling us all about things that he had done. He had told us about his hits, probably embellished quite a bit in true pastor son, preacher son form. Like he had embellished a little bit and told us all about these things, but my son, has loved the game of baseball ever since this game. Well, nothing really changed. We know that. But all of a sudden, man, my son had changed. His perspective on things had completely shifted. When we talk about today, this David's conflict with the king, the king of King Saul comes in full display. What we, we see before Saul is appointed king, he is literally hiding. When they, it comes time to, to for his, cor, uh, his coronation, like he's literally, he has to be found because he's hiding because he doesn't know that he wants to be king. He's worried about it. And so he gets to be king. He, he gets to the throne and all of a sudden, like this trophy, a shift happens in Saul's life. Saul goes from being this super humble guy to all of a sudden reading his own newspaper clippings. Like he becomes a guy that is all about himself. In fact, he's so preoccupied with himself that it drives him mad. It literally drives him crazy. And so when we look at the life of Saul and David, we see a conflict. And so first, we're going to look at this conflict. Running juxtaposed to the life of David, as a man after God's heart, we see the life of Saul, of whom the Lord had already removed his anointing. And he was clinging to the trophies. He was clinging to the pride of being king with everything that he had. Listen where it begins. 1 Samuel chapter 18 1 Samuel chapter 18, we see the first glimpse of this. As they were coming home, coming home from where? Well, when David returned from striking down the Philistine. Literally on the way home from David defeating Goliath. He had come, he had delivered Goliath's head to King Saul. He had, was victorious. And on the way home, newspapers begin to take Note, what happens when the newspaper clippings no longer, the headlines no longer contain our name, but contain others? Listen what happens. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with the tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. And David his 10,000s. This was front page news. This was the headline of all that were around. David, Saul has killed his thousands 
as our king, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Is this true? No, he's killed one guy. It was a giant, pretty cool victory, but he's killed one dude, and all of a sudden, the newspapers go crazy, right? Everybody is celebrating David. Here's Saul. Yeah, he's fine and good, but David, he is the dude, right? Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said that they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Immediately he begins to think about his position as king. He's concerned with himself. He's concerned with his title, his position. And listen what it says in verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day from 1 Samuel 18, for 13 remaining chapters of Saul's life, the theme of that 13 chapters is what Saul does to try to end David's life. He tries everything possible to end the life of David. Although David was in Saul's inner circle, he would eat at his table, he would even be the, become his son-in-law. He would marry Saul's daughter. He would attempt time and time again to kill him. It started out very covert. The next day, right, when they were alone and Saul had one of his temper tantrums as David was playing the guitar. Remember, the harp just doesn't sit well with me. The, the, uh, he's playing the guitar, okay? And he's tearing it up, man, melting faces with his guitar. And Saul gets angry. And he decides the day after God has used David to deliver the Philistines into his hand that he has defeated Goliath, Saul tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. What does that mean? To impale him, to run him through with a spear. He misses, thankfully. But that's not the only time he does it. He sends him on suicide missions to win his daughter's hands. If you will come and you will defeat 200 Philistines by yourself, then I will give you my daughter's hand. Well, he goes out and he does it incredibly and provides proof. Go back and read it. It's kind of weird. He made him the commander in his army and he would assign his, his uh, rule, he would design his command, the most difficult missions, intentionally trying to kill David. And then later in his life, he would get much more overt with his attempts. He would send assassins after David to kill him in his sleep. He would uh, launch entire military campaigns to end David's life solely because David had been anointed as king. He was the next in line. Saul was obsessed with his throne. It was the trophy of his life. But the saddest part of the story of Saul's demise is that he totally missed from the day that God delivered Israel, he missed the fact that it was in fact God who had delivered Israel, not David. 
Do you remember what David said? You come at me, Goliath, with a sword and a spear and a, and a javelin, but I come at you with you, to you in the name of the Lord. David doesn't come under his own power. He doesn't come with his own resume. He comes in the name of the Lord of whom Goliath had defied. And he tells them, this battle is the Lord's. A man who had every capability of doing exactly what David did, did not do it. Did not act in faith. And instead let a little shepherd boy although he was good looking, run out and slay the champion of the Philistines. But David never sought that credit. David was ascribing to God. The point of it being David is that God got the glory because David had no business facing Goliath as we talked about. And the whole thing about it is Saul is so consumed with his own pride and the own preservation of his reputation that he missed the activity of God in his day. And I just have to believe that he's not alone in that. How many of us, in a pursuit of a dollar, in the pursuit of idealistic expectations for our children, in a pursuit of fame, in a pursuit of reputation, in a pursuit of comfort, our idols may not look like a throne, but I promise you we have the same trophies. And we sacrifice the activity of God in our lives, in our spouse's lives, in our children's lives. We miss it because we are selfish. It's our pride that has permeated everything that we are. The story of Saul is the tragic, the tragic reality that pride prevents us from experiencing the activity of God in our life. Pride has this nasty way, this insidious way. It's in direct opposition to seeing the movement of God in our life. If you are full of yourself, you will not be full of the Spirit because being full of the Spirit means being absent from yourself. It means being bankrupt to yourself and the value that you find in yourself. And it means filling yourself with everything that God is and how He defines you and how He sees you. That Saul would allow a trophy a temporary trophy would cause him to miss God's activity in his day. There can only be one hero in your story. There can only be one hero and everything else is a supporting role. Everything else is window dressing. Who's the hero of your story? What I would argue is if you're trying to be the hero of your story, your story does not have a happily ever after. Because we are sorry heroes. We are flawed and we are broken. David 
was naive enough to believe God in faith and God became the victor for him, right? But this caused a conflict. David was constantly struggling for his life. He was despairing in his life and so God called people to surround him. Let's look secondly at the camaraderie that David experienced. First Samuel chapter 18, this is a story of David and Jonathan. Jonathan, who was Jonathan? Jonathan was Saul's son. Who was Saul's son? Saul's son would have been the logical heir to the throne, right? That's the way monarchies work. It's passed down by birthright. And so David was the one who, was, or Jonathan was the one who was supposed to secede his father. But listen to Jonathan and David. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4. If anybody should have been rivals, it should have been the person that was following after Saul, because Samuel had already said, your son will not reign. And the one who is to reign in his place in David. But listen to their relationship. Verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that means as soon as he had done, he was done fighting Goliath, as soon as he had given the carcass of the giant's head to Saul, Jonathan, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Right? So now David lives in this inner circle, but now there's this threat against his life because Saul is eyeing him. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. It's repeated because it's meant to be emphasized. That Jonathan loved him, and we're not talking about a superficial love. I mean, sure, Saul loved that David was able to beat up Goliath for him. But Saul, Saul didn't love David. He loved David in as much as David could advance his career. And as soon as that became a rival, he became against him. But Jonathan was different. He loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on, and he gave it to, to David. And his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. He stripped, him of, he stripped himself of his robe. This was in the ancient Near East. This was a huge sign. Uh, it, was, it was the highest honor that any royal could give someone to allow them to carry, to wear the kingly robes of the family of royalty. It was the highest honor that, that Jonathan could possibly bestow on David. And then he gave him all of his weaponry, his arsenal that was meant to defend himself, right? That Jonathan, not that he wouldn't go and get more weapons, right? But it was symbolic of he was allowing him, he was trusting him with his entire life, with the entire military force. Many scholars believe that this day, at this time, Jonathan had already heard all of the murmurs about how Samuel had gone to the house of Jesse and how that he would not be the king and that one would rule in his place. And here, even here, many believe that Jonathan was literally or symbolically giving the keys of the kingdom over to David. You want to talk about giving up of your trophies being the rightful heir to the one who is king. And here comes this Johnny come lately 
to take my throne and Jonathan taking his cues, not from his father, not from the pride and the trophies of his father, but taking his cues from the Lord, responded by giving everything he had to David, acknowledging that David would be king. We, we see him recognize it later, and we'll get there, that we, we see him recognize it. But this is the bond that Jonathan and David have together. He protected David's life. Saul was on a war path one day, and David would eat at the table of Saul, but Saul was not beyond sending assassins to kill David and, and harming him. And so David said, look, I'll, I'll come and eat with the king, but I need to know that he's not going to kill me, so uh, I need you to help me in this. Jonathan, I need you to scout for me. And if the king's mad enough to kill me, then shoot some arrows into a field, send your servant after, and I'll know that I need to get out of here. So that's what happens. We find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because I have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and he departed and Jonathan went into the city. Can I tell you, how sick my mind can be. When I read this passage of Scripture, to my shame, the first thing in my mind, and as you read, some of you men in this room may have read, the first thing that popped into your mind is, all right, Jonathan's given up all of his clothes in one encounter. Now he's falling on David's neck and kissing him like gross right? Like what in the world is going on between David and John? And immediately, like that is, that is my thought process. And I just, let me just, let me just talk about this for just a second. Okay. Do you know what I, I see so clearly? I know that God has created women fundamentally different from men with uh, different tendencies and, and, and a whole unique personality. But you know one thing that I believe that women get right, women that follow, pursue after Christ, what they get right is they are willing to let others in to their life. I would argue, men in this room, the greatest practical step that you can take to growing into the image of God is finding yourself another man that you can be vulnerable with and you can pursue Christ together with. It's called accountability. And for some of us in this room, I think the reason why we recoil at that, why I recoil at that, is because I don't want to deal with the reality that I have a hard time in my pride laying down my trophies and allowing somebody to see who I really am. And can I tell you that that has hindered the men of God in his church for far too long? I don't want anybody to see me sweat. I want everybody to, 
hold me in high esteem. The respect that another man has for me is, is important to me. And we can say that we don't value that all day long, but I'm telling you, men, we do. Studies have proven we do. And some of us, the greatest, the greatest worry in our life is for somebody to find out who we really are. And so what do we do? If we live that way, we live in solitude in the greatest area of our weakness. And we say it's okay. We justify it. Because God just hasn't made me touchy-feely. God hasn't made me to be a sharer. God hasn't placed this in my life. We look at David and Jonathan. These were men... I'm talking warriors here, guys. Jonathan, earlier, so we don't know why God had really drawn them together. Jonathan here would lead a campaign. His father would be in a broom tree. He'd be under a broom tree pouting, a pomegranate tree pouting. And Jonathan would take him and his armor bearer and they would go against an entire garrison of Philistines. And he would lay the smack down on an entire garrison of Philistines and deliver Israel through his, will, through his ability. And Jonathan would say, God's not going to save by many or by few. It doesn't matter for God. These are warriors. David had just slain Goliath. These were men. And they were willing to be vulnerable with one another. And God would use this relationship to sustain both of them through the darkest times of their life. Can I tell you, I am thankful. I am thankful that there are men in this room right now that I have had the freedom to be vulnerable with, that have been vulnerable to me, and I can promise you, church, I can promise you, I am stronger as, your, as, the, as the pastor of your church because of the faithfulness of those men. We need each other. We need each other. I'm thankful for that. I wouldn't be where I'm at without that. You can take that for whatever it's worth. Or we can be stuck in, I'm a guy, we don't talk about our feelings. You can be that way. You can always be limited. Would you lay down that trophy? Would you lay it down? It, it's not even real. It's a make-believe trophy. It's just how we want people to see us. It's not even true. Would we be willing to lay it down? Because we see there was commitment to one another. He, he protected David's life, right? He reminded David. Now, this is the dude. This is the dude who is going to take over as king when Jonathan should have been king. Have I mentioned that already? I believe I have, right? Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 23. Saul is in one of his military campaigns coming after David. And Jonathan takes the opportunity to go and to encourage David. He slips out and slips away from the camp and he goes to the camp of David. David saw that Saul, Saul, that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness at Ziph and Hor, at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, the one that everyone thought would be king, rose and he went to David at Horish and he strengthened his hand in God. What did Jonathan do? He strengthened David's hand. Why in the world would you strengthen the hand of the man that is going to rule in your place? 
unless you are placing your confidence in something other than what you could accumulate. He snuck out because he saw his friends suffering and he strengthened his hand in God. More than that, he knew exactly what he was doing. He says, and he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. He knew. He knew what was going to happen. He trusted God even though it meant he would not be king. Now, he didn't realize what would actually happen to him. We find that in the next phrase. I shall be next to you. But he was willing to play second fiddle to a throne that anybody in this world would say was rightfully his. We know that Jonathan would die with his father in the same battle. But he strengthened his hand in God. Maybe the reason why we can't be real with one another is because we can't come from a place of strength in our own hands with God. We're so surface in all of our relationships, not just relationships with other people, but our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can't think of strengthening someone else because we're so preoccupied with our own inability to live the life that God has called us to live. What a sad state of affairs in His church. He strengthened His hand in God. Lastly, we see commitment. David threw it all remained committed. He remained committed to the king and he remained committed to Jonathan even long after they were gone. 1 Samuel chapter 24 tells us the story of David cutting the piece of robe from Saul's garment. Right? Saul launches this military campaign against David. And it, he goes to a place where the cliffs literally look like Swiss cheese. There's so many caves. And Saul chooses the one cave that David and his men are hiding out in. What are the chances, right? Surely God has done this. Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David in verse 2 of Samuel 24. And he came to the sheep's fold by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. You can't script this, right? And now the men of David said, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. You may tell you the reference for that verse they just quoted. There's not one. They completely made it up. They completely fabricated a lie. God had never said that it is for David to take matters into his own hands and to do whatever he would like with God's anointed. That's not what God said. It seemed like that was what God was doing. It seemed like the circumstances seemed to indicate that that's what should happen. But God had said something different. So he cuts the hem of his garment. But look at verse 5. 
He said to his men, the Lord, or excuse me, yeah, verse 5, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He didn't cut off a corner of his throat. He cut off a corner of his robe. And he's so convicted that he waits till Saul gets a ways out and he comes out of the cave and he declares himself. He runs to Saul and he gives him back his garment and he apologizes and he pledges his loyalty to him again. This is a man who is there for the sole purpose of killing him. All of his circumstances seem to point to the fact that he needed to kill Saul in that moment. But just because everything is lining up for us doesn't mean that's what God has called us to do. Many of us in our lives, we... If we are to follow after the will of God, we, we follow it by looking at the push, the, 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 the push and the pulls in our life. And if we see no resistance in a certain area, then, oh, well, surely God is just granting favor here, and this is what we need to do. Or if there's pushback, right? If there's conflict, then man, we don't need to do this because that ruffled some serious feathers. What David is telling us is if God has spoken on an issue, you can justify it however you want, but your circumstances do not dictate what is the truth of God's word. God is not going to go back on his word. And God had appointed Saul as his anointed. Had God taken his anointing away, he sure had. But Saul was still in that anointed position and it was not David's job to remove him. Despite all of the circumstances seeming to point to the logical conclusion of David killing Saul, he chose rather to forgive Saul even to be restored for a very short time into a right relationship with Saul until Saul got moody again and tried to kill him again. This is what we see from David. And he was convinced that Saul was going to get his. He was convinced that God was going to take care of it one way or another, but he trusted God and he didn't take it into his own hands. We are so quick to grab up things and to control it because we don't see God doing it in the way that we want to and it just looks and feels right to do it this way. Or it just, look, it just feels wrong to do it this way so we don't do it. It's why you and I don't share Christ like we should because that could get hard. That could get messy. Oh my gosh, they might ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. For shame. Right? How, how, how could, how, man, what are we going to do in that situation? We can't just say, I don't know. There could be pushback here. But I think all of us know what God's will is. And we can spend all of our lives spinning our wheels trying to hypothesize what is God's will for our life when God's will is clear, to do whatever he wills. That's what it is. And you're either that or you're not. And David, despite circumstances, refused to compromise. He refused to belittle God's man, not even to the extent of cutting the corner of his robe. He had to make it right. 
That was not the only time. David would sneak into camp. A few chapters later, he would sneak into camp when the entire camp of Saul was sleeping and Saul was in the middle. And he and his right-hand man, uh, his right-hand man would ask him, he'd be like, hey, look, here's his spear right here. I can, I can stab, I can literally pin Saul to the ground. Like I can pin him to the earth with his own javelin. Let me do it. And David says, no, it's not my place, right? He was protecting life. He was committed but his commitment goes even further than that. 2 Samuel chapter 5. The death of Saul marks the transition between 1 and 2 Samuel. And very shortly, David would become the king. But he laments the news of Jonathan and Saul's passing, of their death. He laments them publicly. He writes songs in true David form about the loss of Saul and the loss of Jonathan. And then he begins to look around. He begins to think about the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And we find it in 2 Samuel 5, 4 through 5, right? We see David's reign beginning. David reigned for 30, when he was 30 years old. He reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned for over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah for 33 years. But listen to first, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll hit this and we'll be done. David begins to look at the covenant that he made with Jonathan. And he says in verse 1, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul now? If you stop there, you'd think, what's he going? What's he doing? He's eliminating all the threats to the throne. He is prizing his trophy, he is protecting his trophy, and he is killing all of the opponents of Saul, all the opponents that he would have while he has the chance. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The throne corrupted Saul. But even once he was given the throne, David still remembered his covenant. He still remembered his connection with his friend. And so they find a man who you have probably never heard of, a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. He was a cripple because he had been dropped when the entire house of Saul was leaving and fleeing in a hurry after they received news that Saul and Jonathan had died. The woman carrying him had dropped him and had crippled him. He could not walk. And, John, and, and David turns his attention to Jonathan's son. He finds one of Saul's old servants who was serving in David's court. And he asks him, Then King Saul said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. That's Mephibosheth. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. And you shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. 
So what has he given him? He's given him not only this one servant, the, the good servant, but he's given him all of his family to serve as well. He's given all of the estate of Saul back to Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. This crippled man that in this culture would have been completely written off. We even see it in Jesus's day, completely written off, doomed to a life of a beggar but he chooses to show kindness. 15 sons, 20 servants would be enlisted. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He brought him in. And Mephibosheth and the young son, whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. What do we see here? We see David. Saul took the throne and twisted everything for his own glory. We just sang that J Jesus alone is worthy of his name. He deserves the praise in our life, but we live for our own praise far too often. What we see in David, though he was blessed by God and put on the throne, he continued to maintain his faithful covenant relationship with his departed friend, honoring even his son. Mephibosheth became like one of his own sons and was completely restored. The beautiful part of this story, what we see in David's life so much is a type. David is a type of a king who would come. David had no business helping out Mephibosheth, showing kindness to this crippled beggar. He had no business doing it, but he did it anyway. He restored someone who was broken and without hope, and he brought him into a right relationship. He invited him to his table. In church, I would argue that Jesus has done the same thing for us. We have no business. So we talked about, the ladies talked about Psalm 23. We have no business having a table prepared before us in, heaven, in the heavenlies. We have no business there, but our king has brought us to the table. He has restored our brokenness and he has brought us into a right relationship that we see the greatest compliment to David's life is you see Jesus in David. And the question is, does the world see Jesus in you? Do you use the things that God gives you, the blessings in your life? Do you see them as trophies to be lorded and displayed? Or do you see them as things that are to be laid down for the good of others? Do you see them as things to be laid, given back to God in order that he receives the glory for your life? This is the lesson that we learn from David. This is what it means to be a man and a woman after his heart. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? It wasn't about being king for David. And once he became king, he was unchanged. 
Man, our King has done so much for us. If you're here today and you don't have a right relationship with Jesus, there's never been a time where he has restored you to relationship with him, I would ask that today be the day of salvation for you. Would you come? Would you follow him as Lord and Savior in your life? Would you receive from him forgiveness of your sins? Let him restore you to a new life with him you're here and that's you and you need to make that decision i want you to know that i'm here we've got counselors that are waiting with decision counselors that would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have that relationship with jesus i would ask you to respond to this invitation in just a moment pray that god would give you boldness to stand up from your seat to come find this center aisle and find me here at the front Maybe there's things that you need to lay down. Maybe there's trophies that it's time for you to get rid of. Lay down those idols so that you can serve God unhindered. Whatever that looks like for you, I just pray that you would respond in this time of invitation. God's invitation for us to respond to his great love. Father, have your will and way in our hearts. In this time, I pray that we would respond to you and no one else. We would take our cues from you and your word and your truth. And God, I pray for those that need to be restored to that right relationship. Whatever that looks like, God, if they need to lay things down, this altar is open, they would come and they would pray. They'd make their altar their seat. Whatever they need to do, God, but they would get it right with you today. Jesus, we thank you so much for your presence in this place. It's in Jesus' name. Stand to your feet. As we sing, would you come? Whatever decision needs to be made, would you come? Would you respond in this moment?